welcome to the Religion and Popular Culture podcast, where we talk about religion, popular culture, and everything in between. I'm your anthropologist of religion, Viviana Simos, and I am joined, as always, with my lovely friend and colleague, the sociologist with the mostiologist, Alan Thomas. Alan, how are you today? Hello, Vivian. I'm well, thank you. And um, I need to get the catchphrase set up. You are the anthropologist. Right, so sorry. Hi, hi, Vivian, the anthropomologist. I'm the anthropomorologist. <laughs> yeah. We're going to make it stick, even if it doesn't work. <laughs> we'll force it. Like most anthropologists of religion, we'll just force it to force make it sense, away. even we're, if it doesn't. We're going to make the strange familiar. <laughs> Well, I am really particularly excited about today. We have in the past talked about um, seasonal viewings or things that re- we we rewatch. Jesus, I cannot talk today. Uh, that we that we rewatch regularly in certain times. You have talked before about your seasonal rewatch of the entire Lord of the Rings extended editions for uh, New it. Year's. Love it. Which is amazing and wonderful. Um, We, in this household, do not have too many of those kinds of things. However, recently, our new seasonal rewatching that we do every year is Over the Garden Wall, which we watch every autumn. We probably, we normally watch it much closer to Halloween than we did this year. This year, I got a little antsy for autumn and forced it upon us (laughs) a couple of weeks early. Um... But I I am obsessed with the show. Um, it's I say it's a show. It's a mini series. I'll get mm. into it a little bit more. But we always watch it all at one time, almost like a tiny mini movie. Because um, it's about an hour and a half, I think, if you watch it all at once. So it's yeah, the perfect it's length for a movie. Yeah. Um, and um, but I know that Alan, you do not have as much experience with Over the Garden Wall as no. I do. No, twenty four hours so... ago, I hadn't even seen it. <laughs> So tell me about your Over the Garden Wall experience. Okay, um, I thought, um, so obviously I first heard of it when you recommended that I watch it. And um, when it started, I assumed it was much newer than it actually is because it came out in 2014. Mm. Um, I thought this was something that just came out in the last year or so until I realised Tim Curry's in it, and Tim Curry hasn't been well recently, so then I thought, hang on, this has to be a little bit older. Um, So I'm kind of surprised I'd not heard of it before, um, because it's definitely the sort of thing I enjoy. I should preface this by saying I did really enjoy it. Yeah! Uh, It it was good. It was good fun. It was cute. Um, So it was all new to me. A really good cast of people that I already love and other things. I, I don't know how I didn't notice immediately that the main character is Elijah Wood, because once you realise it's him, you you can't unhear it. And um, obviously Christopher Lloyd as the woodsman was so clearly Christopher Lloyd's. Mm. Um, but the animation was great. A really interesting hybrid of quite a modern aesthetic for the character models, but the background looked quite watercolor-ish Yeah, times. it has a very... The entire thing has a very almost hand-painted mm. vibe. Like those really old-school cartoons that were all hand-drawn, hand-painted. Yeah, It so has really that beautiful. vibe to mm. it, even if it's... I don't think it is actually all hand-done, but it, it definitely feels almost like it is. Yeah, and certainly the background detail. So I felt, okay, I'm clearly watching a very modern show, but it feels very nostalgic at the same time. Kind of yeah. the sort of thing that um, the Cuphead game goes for. Mm-hmm. Um 
So, and I, and I thought there were certain elements where you're more of a Ghibli person than I am, so you may tell me that I'm talking out of my ass here, but I thought the Pumpkins episode was heavily inspired by some Studio Ghibli films. Some of the way the pumpkins were dancing, especially the lead pumpkin, just reminded me of Spirited Away. Mm, just like the sort I can of see that. Yeah. some bizarre creature with a static facial expression and bits emerging from him that are just wavy and I, I thought I was immediately reminded of Spirited Away. Um, but then I, I'm not as familiar with Ghibli films as I really should be. So maybe that's just a noob perspective. But <laughs> I really enjoyed it and um, it subverted expectations a few times, which I really appreciated. And I've seen from your notes that we'll want to get into some of that, including our own theories, because my theory was utterly debunked and I was kind of disappointed that it was. Oh, okay. Um, but over to you, Vivian. Tell us more about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we should probably start with people who are not familiar with this, if they are like you and, and this is the first time that they are hearing of it. Um, Over the Garden Wall is, uh, it was created in, well, it first aired in 2014 in November. It has a very autumn vibe to the whole thing. It's, um, the whole show is about two brothers who get lost in some woods and they're just trying to find their way home. But the whole area that they're in is known as the unknown. Mm. And, uh, they run into all sorts of different weird creatures and supernatural going-ons that's all happening um and each every episode is only about 10 minutes long or something like that and there's 10 of them um and they each kind of conquer a small little little element that they interact with um and it so it, it follows the two brothers Wirt, who is played by elijah wood and greg who i don't remember does the voice because it's not as uh well known as elijah wood mm. <laughs> um but it it's actually a small child isn't it I think so. I think it was a young, a young kid, and um, it's a really, it's a really just wonderful, cute romp um, of autumnness. It has moments where I think because um, it's a, people talk about it being a kind of like a kids show, and I think it would be a like appealing to children. I think mm. there might be small bits that might be a bit too scary, yes. depending on on the. You know, yeah, level in a of... similar in a similar sense that some children aren't really suited for Nightmare Before Christmas. Exactly, there are there are small bits that are a bit a bit scary, like the pumpkin episode. Um, in fact, I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about Over the Garden Wall, and um, one of the hosts. I mean, these are all adults, and one of the hosts said that the pumpkin episode was almost too scary for them. Um, mm. But that the pumpkin episode is my favorite episode. <laughs> I I knew it would be. I love it so much. Um, but anyway, so each one kind of leading up to it leads up to them trying to find their way home. And the whole time, there's this kind of ongoing antagonist known as the Beast, who is supposed to be the one who kind of mans the forest and takes lost children um, mm. in some way that is not really spoken of in what way they take the children or anything like that until kind of closer to the end you kind of figure out exactly how how he works as far as stealing lost souls um but amazingly the beast only appears in four of the ten episodes mm. 
But he is this kind of over-looming figure. He's mentioned a lot. He's mentioned a lot. He's whispered about a lot. A lot of people talking about how scary he is. Like, it's this, even though he's not there, you get the vibe of how creepy and antagonistic the Beast is throughout the whole show, which I think is a really beautiful way of doing it as well. That they don't have, like, scenes of them running away from the Beast or anything. It's more of just, like, this looming figure in the mm. background of the whole of the whole world. Yeah, much more effective. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think it's a really... It's one of my favorite pieces. I discovered it a bit late, um, a couple of years back. Um, I heard there was um, a YouTube series of people that are artists that I watch, and um, some of them did some artwork that was inspired by the style of Over the Garden Wall. And I was like, well, this is really cute. I like this. Mm. <laughs> um, so we went to go find it and we watched it and it has I have become immediately obsessed with it. And so we watch it every year now um, in autumn times, kind of leading up to Halloween is mm -hmm. right around the time that we watch it. Um. It is created by Patrick McHale, who um, is also known for Adventure Time and Gravity Falls. Right. Uh, he did Gravity Falls after this one, um, but bef he had done Adventure Time by the time that he was putting together Over the Garden Wall. That's another show that seems to have a broad adult and child fan base. Yeah, same thing with Gravity Falls as well. I don't know if you've seen Gravity Falls. I haven't seen Gravity Falls. I've seen some Adventure Time. Uh, I think it's on Disney Plus Gravity Falls because we watched it all. Um, it's really good. Uh, it's not quite as good as Over the Garden Wall, <laughs> but it's a very different type of show. Um, but it's it's got a similar thing to it where you could imagine kids enjoying it, but also there's a lot of adult fan bases to it as well. I think Patrick McHale's probably really hits that that spot really well mm. um and also i think a lot of his work has that kind of timeless feel to it even though it also feels very modern all at the same time which is really difficult to do to make something feel very contemporary but also feel like you could have been watching this for years um, yeah absolutely and you know i was referring to nostalgia there for with the art style for a, a type of animation that Far predates my lifetime. Exactly. <laughs> so what nostalgia am I even referring to there? Yeah, so. well, I thought when I was re-watching it this year, it was already I'd already pitched it to you. And so I was re-watching it and there was a little voice in the back of my head going, oh, would, would Alan really like this? So I was kind of thinking about that as I was watching it. And um, there there's a scene where they're in a tavern and all the taverns are an archetypical character. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, the there's the highwayman who does like a little dance thing to mm. singing that he's a highwayman and the way that he moves is so cuphead mm -mm, is mm -hmm. like that that art style yes. and, and that kind of really old cartoons of yeah. like the jazz and dancing with weird limbs that kind of move strangely mm. and mm. and he had that and i was just like oh yeah yeah alan's gonna love this yes yeah um, i was wondering if i'd uh, how you responded to this because I, I I think the listeners already know that we are not kids people um, <laughs> no. but I, but I think I'm not a kid person at all but I think my tolerance is a little bit higher than yours Vivian mm. um, which is saying something um, so when I started watching it and Greg turned up I thought oh this kid's going to be immediately irritating um, by the end, I've got 10 episodes of this little kid ahead of me. Oh, this... But I ended up finding him really endearing. 
I love Greg. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. I did really. There were moments at the beginning where I just thought maybe I should go back and rewatch it now that I like him. But at the beginning, I thought, oh god. And I know he's supposed to be quite an irritating little brother character for um, what's his name? Wurt. Wurt, Wurt is the Wurt? yeah. So the brothers yes. are Wurt and Greg. Wurt, yeah. And Greg's the younger one, yeah. Yeah, and I, I thought, okay, he's clearly meant to be the slightly irritating little brother. Um, but. <laughs> But yeah, I ended up finding him. Re- there was a moment where he sings this song about mashed potatoes, <laughs> and and that was the moment where I thought to myself, "This is now going to go one of either way." But by the end of the song, I found him really endearing, and then from then onwards, I was on board with him. Um, so I was wondering how you felt about Greg. You just said I, that you loved I him. I was on. I was with Greg from from the beginning. Um, that first episode where uh, there's a dog that's been kind of. I don't know, possessed by some weird thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, Greg is in a barrel and the dog's head is kind of trying to get into the barrel to snatch at Greg. And Greg is just sat there and the, the eyes are kind of going crazy on the dog. And he just goes, you've got really pretty eyes. <laughs> <laughs> it was like immediately, I was like, okay, yeah. And I think in that first episode, he also has his very first catchphrase, which is, ain't that just the way? Ain't that just the way, yeah. Which I, I love. There's it. He's got that vibe of like that young kid that acts like they're a fifty year old man, mm. which is my favorite type of young kid. Yeah, and, yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I think he's, he's got that right level of. He is a bit annoying, but I think he's got that that annoying kid's vibe. That's more of I will take the situation that's presented to me and make it in my head the way I would prefer it. Yes, yes, he definitely sees the best in. In yeah, the situations that they find themselves in. A whole on-running thing where um Greg kind of says that they f- they have a, a, a frog friend that mm. Greg found that his name keeps changing throughout the entire show. Yeah. Very um, presidentially. Yes. <laughs> I would say there was quite a, a string of presidents for a while. Um there was also just some it was Wirt jo- uh, Jr. at the very beginning. Um kind of constantly changes the name. But the whole idea was that he said that they found the frog when they went frog hunting. But then there's a flashback episode and it turns out they never went frog hunting because Wirt refused to go with the brother. But when the brother was kind of tagging along with him, that he happened to find the frog. And Mm. so in his head, he's like, yeah, I went frog hunting with Wirt, which is what he wanted to do, even though Mm. Wirt kept refusing to go with him yeah and i'm not going to spoil it for the listeners but i did laugh when i when we finally found out why he has a teapot on his house yeah <laughs> because throughout this entire series he he's walking around with an upside down teapot on his head and it's only an episode it's only an episode nine yeah that you you well, find they, out they're, why they're both wearing weird outfits yeah and it it does it kind of has that thing where you're not really sure what time period it's hmm. supposed to be taking place in, but it turns out in the flashback episode that they were dressed up for Halloween, which yes. is why they're in strange outfits. And there's, and I was wondering what time period their so-called real world was in. Yeah. And then it became quite clear that there's a joke towards the end that this girl that Wood has a crush on doesn't have a tape player and he'd made her a mixtape of yeah. various things. But so I thought, okay, this is a bit more modern than I thought it was if she doesn't own a cassette player. Yeah. Um but this is where my theory fell flat because both Tori and I watched it last night and we spent the entire thing convinced that they were in some form of purgatory. 
that these kids had died and that they were being navigated towards the next life and they were meeting people in a next life scenario um particular the what really started getting me thinking about that was the pumpkin episode with the fact that the pumpkins were essentially outfits for skeletons and um and the and the kids don't know why they're there how and how they got there uh and there's a flashback scene in episode nine where you find out how they did get to the world that they're in and there's a very quick moment where Wirt and Greg quickly jump out of the way of an oncoming train mm. and when that train came along I thought okay they got run down by the train and they haven't realized they thought that they managed to it's a bit of a cliche that sort of thing does happen in pop culture quite a bit where somebody thinks they've managed to avoid a, a bullet or something like that and then they find out that they are dead yeah. um nothing springing to mind right now they'll all come to mind after we finish so i thought okay they've both been run down by a train and now the beast is this sort of looming specter this death figure that's drawing them into an afterlife into death kind of like what paddington did for the queen recently <laughs> um <laughs> with with all those posts about paddington leading the queen away um but but on a serious note i i i thought okay these kids are in a strange afterlife scenario where they're on a journey, another step. So I'm curious as to why you think that one got debunked. I felt like... So I, I should probably say, if you haven't watched it and you're curious, go, go watch it and then come go, back to listen yes, to the episode. Yes, there I, will be spoilers. Yeah, we are not going into spoiler territory. I felt like the ending really spelled things out a fair amount. Not to the extent that it was never explained, because they do literally go over a wall. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the over-the-garden wall thing. They literally go over the wall. There's this hilarious sequence where they're being chased by the police, but the police are just trying to look after them. The police uh, are just having fun on Chris, on a Halloween I, I and mean, up accidentally scaring them. Yeah. So they literally go over a garden wall, so to speak. It's not explained what on earth is going over on that side of the wall. But to me, they're not dead because they, they then end up, oh, you know, they were... They just got a little bit concussed, yeah. and and then they wake they wake up in hospital in a hospital bed or in a bedroom. I can't remember which one it is. And then all their friends are there, and it was just a bit like, do you remember Soul? Yes. I uh, I don't feel the same way. I thought I thought Soul was a fantastic film, but I really thought the ending was a cop out. I would have thought the end. I thought the ending of Soul would have been much more profound if the main mm-hmm. character. had accepted the fact that he had died and the moral of the story would have been sometimes life just can be unfulfilling sometimes things just don't work as out as you planned it was a little bit too neat for my liking this went to me this went for a bit of a neat ending but i didn't mind um because of the atmosphere of the show i don't know Yeah, because I guess, um, I think that the theory of purgatory can still stand. It's not what I think of what's going on, but I I think it still works because you have them, basically when they go over the wall, they kind of hit some, uh, their heads or they hit in some water and they kind of somewhat pass out for a second. Mm. 
And I think the way that I, if, if you're going to go with the purgatory argument, then it would be that it is that stage in between and them trying to go home is essentially them trying to get back to life. And it's the argument of whether or not you're going to die or are you going to live. So by defeating the beasts, they manage to pull themselves back into the world of the living. Yeah. I, I do see that. And what's also really important to mention is the fact that when they do wake up, Greg and Mort can remember the same things. Yeah, I think that one defeats the the dream. It's all yes, a dream argument. Yes, and I we... I did hear that they when they were initially putting it together, that was supposed to be the first episode, the flashback ninth episode. Oh, I'm but really glad they didn't do. I those. know. I think it's really well placed because he said that he didn't want people to be thinking the entire time that it might be a dream. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, and it would have taken some of the mystique away. Yeah. Because you are completely in the dark as to how these children are there, or if they're even, they are just part of this world and they've just got lost one day. But it's, because they ne there isn't a moment where they stand back and say, what the hell is all this fantastical thing happening around yeah, me? Yeah, they just they, they take just, it all. Yeah, so the so you're watching it and you think they may just be completely used to seeing fantastical things and these bizarre creatures What's also quite interesting as well is after they do wake up, you do get a little montage of the over-the-garden-wall world where characters' lives have moved on. So suggesting that world is still continuing without them. Mm-hmm. Particularly, oh, what was her name? Was it Bernadette? Patrice? Beatrice. Beatrice. Um, which I was wondering, is that a reference to Beatrix Potter? Because some of the the frogs in particular, some of the animals that come to life in the show did give me a bit of a Beatrix Potter vibe. Um, but you, you see Beatrice having returned to human form and so on. And she's clearly developed as a person as well. Yeah. Um, I was wondering when, when I was watching it last night, because um, I went into it completely blind. I hadn't read your notes yet. At the end, I was wondering if you were going to want to talk about animism. Ooh, I think that show. would be a good one. Be yeah, because the show is all about what, what and Greg's relationship with other than human persons. Mm. And what is a person. And it, it gets quite literal with the character of Beatrice because she's literally a human transformed into a bird. But then there's plenty of other creatures that they interact with as persons they're, they're, they're not inanimate though that is I don't think there's a moment that they interact as well him. I think that you could the trees particularly the Edelwood trees I think could yes also the soul yes the soul in the connection because I think it's important to note that in animism not all inanimate um uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah other than human persons it's no. like specifically certain i mean not all the animistic religions are the same so mm -hmm. flag there but also um so so for example some that believe in certain rocks moving and having power not every rock has yes that power. It's, it's relational isn't rocks. it it's special rocks and so mm. i think that in over the garden wall it's not every tree it's very specific trees and it's the edelwood trees that are supposed to be essentially the souls of the people who lost children are lost and never went home which i think is where that purgatory argument could still stand yes yeah 
because I, at the end, you kind of see both of the brothers at one point get to be kind of quite hopeless about going home. And the tree starts to grow around them. Mm. They start to become a tree. And that's when the beast points out to the woodsmen that all of the Edelwood trees, this is where they come from. That that was my favourite Greg moment, by the way, when Beatrice says, oh my god, the leaves are even growing inside yeah. them. No, I just ate some leaves. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, 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 the, they do have interesting, re- and they don't question it. Yeah. That there's never a moment where they say, "Oh goodness gracious, I'm I'm talking to a talking frog or whatever." And and again, that added to that mystery of are they even from our world? Mm-hmm. Which, if they had done the flashback episode from the very beginning, would have got rid of some of that mystery. So it was really well placed at the end, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I I do think that there's a lot of really interesting kind of conversations about um, the supernatural, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I, I do want, it's kind of similar to the animistic conversation about uh, issues with the word supernatural, because the idea of it is that it's something other than natural, but if you... If your worldview is that rocks can move, then that's not supernatural. That's just how the world is. Yes, and and that's the important point to mention about other than human persons, is that the English language has... um, I really want to avoid using the word conditioned, but the English language has influenced us to always think of the word person as human being. Mm. But that isn't necessarily the case. So other, other things can be persons. Well, whenever I used to teach this with students, um, our first kind of entry point into it was always pets. Mm-hmm. That people think of their pets as persons. Mm-hmm. They have this really intense relationship with a pet. You really love your pet. Like, you see personhood, I'm sure, in your cats. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. And um, then you can kind of start extending it from there. I know that... Um... Graham Harvey at the opening. You can't mention animism without mentioning Graham Harvey yeah. anyway. But uh, Graham Harvey has a fun activity in the materials that Open University students get for him, where he gets you to think about, do you have certain objects in your house that live in certain places? Or th- these are where the mugs live. Um, mm. And um, have you ever shouted at a computer screen uh, out of frustration at technology? And uh, he makes the really important things a point of this may seem like a little bit of a, you know, a fun, frivolous exercise, but it does get you thinking about your relationship with objects, with things and with creatures that you wouldn't necessarily think of as persons. Mm. Um, so I, th- I, th- I think that's quite fun. But I certainly see personhood in my cats and I, and I do project as well. So I've, I've got. I've got voices for my cats <laughs> that they, you know, they have specific voices that I will do on their behalf. Um, but I, I certainly see that. And I think you do as well, Vivian. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I know you have a very interesting relationship with uh, your plants, for example. I, I do. I'm quite connected to my plants. They all have... Well, they don't all have names. Um, some of them don't. 
some of basically uh i wait for the plants to tell me their names which i'm sure many people will find confusing <laughs> but i i do think there is a certain amount of um some of it probably is ascribed and some of it is understanding the behavior of certain living things um we have a peace lily i think you have a peace lily as well and i am absolutely useless with identifying plants, okay. so there's lots <laughs> i'd of have to have lives. a conversation with tori about it yeah but my peace lily is so dramatic like overly dramatic if i have gone one hour from watering her the way that she needs to be like at the timing that she needs to be watered she droops everywhere as if she is dying and it's like it has been not even a day <laughs> you are not gonna die and then you water her and she's like oh i'm back to being alive look at me it's just like she's just so dramatic but it's like you have really dramatic plants and also you have plants that just don't really care about you fussing with them. <laughs> Those are the kind of plants that I can get on board with. Yeah. So I've been moving mine around because it being colder, you kind of need to move them around at different mm. points at different times of year. Mm. So I'm trying to find the right place for some of them um, for them to live. Uh... <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think... Um, I think that there is a certain level of it that is natural for us to do, no matter the cultural context. But I think it's also really important to remember that certain cultural contexts, it is an ingrained part of their understanding mm. of the world mm -hmm. that these things um, are part of the natural. They're not supernatural. Yeah. They are inherently part of the world and the way that the world works. Yeah, I think animism is very much an anthropology 101 mm -hmm. uh, topic and taking a step back from your cultural surroundings and your upbringing and what you and what you take for granted the classic making the strange familiar and the familiar strange i think animism is a lovely gateway for early anthropologists yeah i used to do um a really fun pro well i did it one year uh with some students when we were doing animism where um, I asked them before the seminar to take a photo of something that they thought represented a natural worldview. And that's the way I was phrasing it. Um, and it was really fun to get all sorts of different... So you had, like, lots of people took pictures of trees and shit. Mm -hmm. But then you had some really interesting ones that people would bring in as well. Um, there was somebody brought in a photo of a really tall rock that was just in the middle of the forest mm. and they were saying that they were thinking about like how did this get here and maybe it just showed up mm -hmm. and that's what made them take the photo of it mm. you know them kind of contemplating the fact that this rock they found themselves thinking about the fact that this rock could have just shown up mm -hmm. and um, it's also important to remember as well that when you're looking at natural landscapes that doesn't mean that humans have to be separate humans are part of that a, yeah, a, yeah. a city is a natural landscape <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think um, uh, a lot of times when you talk about landscape, people always think about, you know, that pristine, non-humanly touched Those grand thing. views that you get in Lord of the Rings of yeah. <laughs> mountain, sweeping mountains and wonderful waterfalls and so on. But, but yeah, there's there's an inherent relationship that's going on. And as soon as humans recognize the fact that we are as much a part of the landscape as the landscape is also a part of us is when we will maybe start treating it a little bit better. <laughs> yes, that's the other that's the other point as well, isn't it? 
So but, um, in, in Over the Garden Wall, they do have this... Every episode focuses around a new relationship that they've developed, whether that's mm. with the pumpkins or with... Um, um, oh, the niece of Auntie Whispers. I can't remember her name. Yeah. And um, John, the aristocrat played by John Cleese. Um, and a lot of these you don't even see them there's just one episode where they meet a horse at the end of the episode and you think okay a horse is part of the clan now and then once the next episode begins they're just having dinner in in a mansion with with a, a, an old man voiced by John Cleese and the and, horse can and, talk and the, and the horse can talk and there's never that moment of how did they find this place how did they get in a, a lot of the new chapters begin with a new scenario that you don't quite see how they got there. Yeah. Um, which is good from a time-saving perspective. Um, but they they cultivate relationships all along, but nine times out of ten, they are under the wrong impression. Mm-hmm. About, so the pumpkins, are, the pumpkins are evil. There's a gorilla chasing them outside a school, and, and there's... Um, uh, Auntie whispers as this really evil creature controlling her niece, and then at the end of the episode, you find out that actually things aren't uh, what they seem. Yeah, yeah. My favorite was the because at the the pumpkin one, they have them at the they have them do little small things of labor because they kind of ruined little bits of the village. So mm. um, as a way of like repenting, and one of the last ones is that they were digging really deep holes, and they start realizing that it might be. Well, Wirt starts realizing that it might be a grave and so starts freaking out and Greg finds a skeleton at the bottom of his. And so then they go, oh no, they're going to kill us. So they're trying to escape, but it turns out that the pumpkins were just trying to dig up the skeletons to then join the village Mm. of dead people. (laughs) Mm. You're you're probably going to absolutely hate me for saying this, but I thought, especially in the early episodes, Wirt really reminded me of Morty from Rick and Morty. This neurotic, mm. jittery a... teenager. <laughs> um, but unlike Morty, he grows throughout yeah, the series. Word is an interesting character. And he he's kind of that nerd kid. And he writes poetry. And he always mm. like weirdly recites poetic oh, things. This, his funniest moment for me is when they end up in a different part of the mansion. And he notices the architecture is from a different era. Yeah. The other part of the mansion. The, yeah. So he, he said that John Cleese's character's uh, part, part of his manner had Gregorian sensibilities. Yeah. And, and I can't remember the... Uh, because I'm, I'm clearly not up with my architecture the way that Waters. Um, but it really cracked me up. He has this very... He has this very interesting, interesting side where he's quite well-read. Yeah, um, he's. I mean, he's a nerd. Yeah, <laughs> and he plays clarinet and writes poetry and knows about architecture. And mm. he's a, you know, he's a bit of a nerdy kid. Um, and it's important to note as well that they are half brothers, him and yes. Greg. Which yes. I normally wouldn't make a distinction for. I've got half siblings, and I, I don't think of them as half siblings. I think of them as siblings. But it's important in this story because there's clearly work. Clearly has a an inherent issue that he's working through in the fact that his mom remarried and then had another kid. There's a moment and it happens really quickly, but he says to Greg something about you and your dad. 
Yeah. Not our dad or my stepdad. You and your dad. And it happens really quickly. It's a very... It's a very natural bit of dialogue because he's speaking so quickly and is clearly just processing a lot of things in his head. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. Obviously, you know, these these things need not be an issue, but a conscious decision has been made in the making of this show to make those it, steps. It's siblings. an issue for, for Wirt. And, yeah. and it's something that he has to kind of slowly work through over the course of the show is, is figuring out that he actually does care for Greg. It's, and also that... And he has a responsibility as well yeah. as the older brother um, because Greg doesn't see the distinction at all. Yeah. He, have, Greg never once comments on the fact that there's step-siblings and, and so on. He's just... He's just being Greg and Walt's his big brother. There's a moment near the end of the show where Walt doesn't necessarily abandon Greg, but... He kind of like Gre- he lets Greg do his own thing in a way that, as an older, more responsible character, he should have been keeping a little bit more of an eye on him. And this is when he then starts to realize that actually he should have been looking after this child, mm-hmm. because Greg just he is so young that he is just wandering through the world naively, where everything is just great, which, which you know. I wish we all could do that. Yeah. But th- there's just imminent danger surrounding them all the time. And Craig, nine times out of ten, is completely oblivious. Yeah, and I think there's, uh, at the very beginning, it kind of shows it where um, it was when they first run into the woodsman in the very first episode. And Wirt says something like, oh, do you think he's an axe-wielding maniac that's going to kill us? And then Greg just leaves to go towards the guy. And you can see that Wirt's like, the, what the hell? Yeah. And, you know, even with more mundane things, like Greg doesn't see the problem with giving his mixtape, giving Wirt's mixtape to Sarah. Mm. He just says, oh, if you made it for her, you should let her have it. Whereas he's completely unaware of the social embarrassment and the rejection that Walt is erroneously afraid of, because I think Sarah does have a soft spot for him. But Justin Funderburger. (laughs) (laughs) I do love how you hear about this kid that Walt's a little bit jealous of and thinks that the girl he has a crush on is into. You hear about him early on, and then you you hear hear about about how great he is. He is great, he is. You think that he's a little bit of a He's like the jock character in your head. And it turns out he's also another nerd. (laughs) And and he's almost even nerdier than because he's more socially inept than Wirt is. And you can also see that Sarah's just not into him. Yeah. But Wirt is absolutely convinced that she's going to run off with what was his name? Johnny Fun- Justin Funderburger, because Just that it becomes the name of the frog at That's the end, it. because yes. it's the perfect frog name. Yeah, J- Justin. And the fact his name is J- Justin's quite a cool name, certainly compared to Wurt. Yeah. So I had an image of a jock type character, and then he turned up wearing a cardigan. And- <laughs> And speaking, and he speaks with like a really nasally voice. uh, Yeah, (laughs) this archetype nerd voice. Yeah, Uh, that was very funny. But yeah, the the show kind of has that. I I like to think of it as a very 
mythic styling because I think of everything as very. I, I knew. I, yeah, I, I thought you would go down this route. But yeah, the 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 kind of vignettes that you get also are kind of like the little stories that you get that kind of compile a larger narrative mm. of uh, one one myth. But you get little bits of like, oh, that's when Hercules went and did this, but. Often yeah. you don't get the boring in between bits of well, how did he get to point A and point B? Well, it doesn't mm. matter. What matters is the little vignette that you get. How did they and end up in John Cleese's manor? It doesn't. It doesn't matter. It just yeah. matters that they're there and that the horse wants to steal. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's what matters. And um, you get these little bits, and and it's it's not about how they got to the unknown. It's not about how they you know, having everything small explained, it's just about telling the story and the point of the story mm. and what you get out of that little bit of the story. And to me, that whole thing summarizes the way that myths are structured um, and the in a, in a much more kind of narrative way of structuring it. But they, and they take a lot of the kind of archetypes, like we were saying, and a, and a lot of the kind of familiar things and, and they set you up to be like, oh, I see where this is going. Yeah. And then they do a small little twist on it. So you're like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. You know, yeah. I think the Auntie Whispers episode is probably my favorite example of this, where you've got this really scary old woman, maybe Auntie Whispers, who voiced has by a, Tim Curry, voiced by Tim <laughs> Curry, who's got a niece and who she's controlling the niece. And she's talking about like, oh, if children come into this house, they will be devoured. And you're like, oh, Auntie Whispers is the bad guy. Mm. And it turns out she's controlling the niece because the niece is a hungry ghost thing that will eat children. I, I, I just can't believe, though, that it never occurred to Auntie Whispers to do what the kids did and just say, hello, demon, can you... Can you leave the body of this child? I know. <laughs> Problem solved. No, she just has to keep her busy so that way she doesn't eat children. But it's mm. like that thing of you you kind of expect. It sets you up for that classic story yes. telling fairy tale thing of the evil, you know, aunt that's going to eat the children. But it's it's the young princess, essentially, that is the bad guy instead. Yeah. It's the the for the village full of dead people isn't going to kill you. They're just there to do their harvest, and they do offer for them to stay, mm. um, because it'll be safe there. And they say ominously that they'll be back. Yeah, because people never normally leave. <laughs> Ooh. But yeah, I love that. I love the pumpkin episode. And, um, but yeah, so it has like these little, these little small twists on things. Um, and I, I think that that's kind of also in a way how the fuller story goes as well is because you also expect Greg to change a little bit, but he doesn't. Greg no. doesn't have a character arc in the way that Wirt does because Greg doesn't need to have a character arc. It's what Wirt needed was to learn more from Greg rather than for Greg to learn yeah. more from Wirt. And I and I think Greg is also just a snapshot of what a child is like at that particular age. Ain't and, that the way it is? Uh, yeah, and 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 that's okay. He doesn't need to be. He doesn't need to be more mature because he's. Um, I interpret him as being something like five years old. Yeah, he's supposed to be quite young. I would say because yeah. I think. Wirt's like in high school. 
Which he thinks is like being an adult. Yeah, there's there's a funny point where it was in the Auntie Whispers when Auntie Whispers was like, I smell children, and where it's like, children? I'm in high school. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also when you're watching it as an adult, you find hysterical, because that's yeah. how high schoolers think. Yeah, um, I'm now at the age where I just think of people in their early 20s as being kids. Yeah. When you get to that age. Because <laughs> you're old. I'm, I'm not I'm even old. 30 yet. No. <laughs> Aren't you ticking down though? Don't you? Just I don't a... need you to tell me that. <laughs> you just have a matter of days remaining. I've got um almost an exact month. <laughs> oh, is your birthday in November? Yep, November eleventh. Oh. oh, I'm a bad friend. I thought your birthday was in October. It's okay. I don't send you anything or keep track of your birthday. <laughs> no, that's true. It's nice. <laughs> But yeah, so um, I'm I'm getting close to the thirty, but it, it's this is my last year. I've got my last month of my twenties. <laughs> mm. Yes, I'm a little baby. Yeah, yeah, you are. I was really pleased that I managed to submit my thesis in my twenties, but I did my viva in my thirties. <laughs> because I turned thirty the week before my viva. Which I was, meant I was, I was not listening calm. to a podcast that was about um, the Enigma Code guy. Anyway, and it the they made a movie about him where he was played by Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, oh yes, yes, I'm with you. I can't think um, of his name right now, yeah. which is terrible because he's an amazing person who was treated incredibly horribly at the end of his life. Um, but basically, uh, they were it was a podcast where they were kind of going over his biography and they were commenting about how impressive it was that he had a PhD by the time he was 26. And I was like, I had a PhD by the time I was 26. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, enough bragging about me. <laughs> yeah, enough about that. <laughs> about my youth and intelligence. No, um, uh, I just sit around watching over the Alan Turing. Wall. That's <laughs> sorry, Alan Turing. Alan Turing. Yes. How could we forget? Sorry, that was terrible of me because, like I said, he was horrendously yeah. treated. But um, oh gosh, yeah. Anyway, but back to happier things. Back to happier things. <laughs> over the garden wall. <laughs> No, um, I I have my own theory, which I'm going to kind of glaze over because I did a, I did a video essay on this because, of course, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that it's autumn by doing everything over the garden wall as humanly possible. But um, it basically, I take the kind of mythic route where it doesn't need to be a specific location in the sense that purgatory to me is a specific location. I know that's not really, but, you know. But um, I think of it as adaptation, that you need to keep creatively changing. So mm. Wirt is very stubborn, and we see this in, in uh, quite a few of the episodes. <laughs> but mm. my favorite one is the schoolhouse one, where yeah. he get Beatrice makes a comment about how he always does what he's, as he's told. And so he purposefully gets into weird situations by doing what other people tell him to do, to try mm. to be stubborn about things to Beatrice. Meanwhile, Greg's running around with creatures completely outside. And like mm. you said, not he's not paying attention to what Greg is doing and caring about what Greg is really getting up to. Yeah. Um, But I, I think that that's kind of why Wirt gives up much quicker than Greg does. Greg is kind of constantly able to... to shift gears and to think creatively and to alter his his viewpoints and constantly be changing 
in the way that work doesn't do. Yeah. And when the beast comes after you, he doesn't just come after lost souls, because otherwise he would have just grabbed the kids from the very beginning. He has to wait for them to be hopeless, which I think is a really fascinating aspect of his gear, his his wanderings. Yeah, he never touches them. Yeah. And when they are turned into the trees, the the branches just envelop around them. So there isn't a moment where they are grabbed by... And I think that's why you don't get that sequence of them being chased by the beast. Yeah. Because what would he do when he even gets to them? Yeah, because he's kind of got to... It's kind of a mind game more than a... Because at one point, Greg goes with the beast willingly to try to save Wart. Yeah. He gives himself over instead of Greg. Or instead of Wart. But Greg doesn't like he doesn't get just immediately turned into a tree either like the beast has him do all of these weird tasks and Mm. stuff in order to get him to start getting more and more tired and more and more hopeless um but it takes some time we don't really know how long because it's snowing at Mm. one point so it feels like it's probably been been a long time been a bit of him trying to do this. which I, So I, I think it's really interesting that it's kind of this idea of hopelessness in the face of change, that that's what the beast kind of grabs onto. Um, the beast is kind of a perfect example of, of the kind of characters that are normally associated with death in mythology as well. Um, you know, those kind of characters that are, are kind of seemingly very uh, hypocritical in the way that they're constructed, where they are both, like, honorable, but also mean and angry. You know, it's like that kind of Mm. bit. Um, He's, you know, he's manipulative, but also has to let them become hopeless. Mm -hmm. Because we see how manipulative and how much he's lying and stuff to the woodsmen. Yes. But yet he doesn't seem to be doing anything that untoward with Greg. So it's this weird, like, what is your honor system? <laughs> mm-hmm. That is really complicated to get. But I, I find him really fascinating in a, in a kind of mythic death figure. Um, kind of um, leshy-ish. Mm. And the way that he looks is very leshy-ish, I think. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a weird word, leshy-ish. Leshy-ish. Yeah. Um, but I've been I've been reading a lot about uh one of one of your your motherland's um figures of death, Gwyneth. Oh, have you? Yes, been having fun. <laughs> how, yeah, I was going to ask how are you getting on. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm not reading it in Welsh, so I'm doing all right. <laughs> yeah, good spells. Not at quite that point of reading the Mabinogian in, like, Old Welsh or anything, but... Yes. Yes, Old Welsh is quite something. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's also... There's figures... Figures like Gwyn is, is quite commonly found in, um, you know, the, the kind of people that charter the death to death. Um, and I think the beast really fits that mm. that kind of element. I mean, you kind of explained it, the, the, the Paddington figure. Yes, but for... It, <laughs> For our non UK listeners, a really strange thing happened during the period of mourning for the Queen's death. Where um, a few months before she died for the Platinum Jubilee, there was a very short, um, almost a skit that the Queen recorded 
where she's having tea with Paddington the Bear. And um, the public really took to it, to, to the extent that when she then died, Paddington was almost a symbol of grief. So Buckingham Palace had to stop, had to ask people to stop leaving Paddington bears and marmalade sandwiches with the flowers outside the palace. Um, but also there were these really strange drawings of the Queen being walked to the afterlife, guided by Paddington. <laughs> she, she's holding his hand and he's taking her to the next life, like like he is death or something. Yeah. And And then... Because old people really can't meme, they have to keep adding to it um, with really awkwardly placed text. There was then another version of that drawing with a caption that read, I've done my duties, Paddington, now take me to my husband. Which really did suggest that Paddington was the gateway uh, for her between this realm and the afterlife. Yeah. So Do you, do you know the term <laughs> for um, figures like Paddington? No, I say oh, Paddington. It's more more like the the Gwyneth Neath type figures, because it's one of my favorite terms in myth studies. Mm-hmm. It's a psychopomp. Oh yes, it, which it, is the, just so yeah, much fun to yeah, say. Yeah, yes. I, I this does remind me. I saw somebody refer to Paddington as a psychopomp. Yeah, so Paddington has become the new psychopomp. But um, I I think that the Beast is is the over the garden walls psychopomp. In a way, especially if you're doing the purgatory, yeah, they so, might be catered off to death viewpoints. So yeah, Paddington's gone through a lot of changes over the. I is it bad that I was debating on us doing an episode on Paddington and the Queen's death at one point, but then I was like, I don't know if that's really the smart way of being to do this. It. it... On a completely serious note, it is fascinating from a sociological perspective. There were, and, from an anthropological perspective, because I am the anthropologist. Anthropomologist. <laughs> but I, um, there were a lot of things around her death that I found utterly fascinating to mm. look into. From the the Paddington thing was really fascinating, but mm. just the cue. I could write books on the cue. <laughs> Just the cue. Not what the cue is for, not what led to the cue, just the cue. The cue the, the was bizarre. It was quintessentially British, um, because British people love to cue. Oh, but the, the, moment, the moment I found out that there was a cue for the cue... Yup. <laughs> <laughs> there were uh, updated apps that were explaining where the end of the cue was, because obviously, if it's moving... Mm. then how do you know where Where to to go so people arranging for knowledge of where the end of the queue is it was amazing Mm. and apparently it was quite interesting to watch because i didn't watch this at all but um there was a live feed of the queen lying in state so you could see people get to the coffin after queuing for 13 hours and people would have various little rituals, little things that they would do when they see the coffin. Um, Apparently that was quite interesting. Um, But the queue itself was bizarre. I thought you might like... uh, We were sat on the couch and Tom likes to, for some reason, read news while we're sitting on the couch. I would never. 
Um, but he was scrolling through the news, and obviously at that time, BBC was only ever reporting on things relating to the funeral and her death, and there was it was like there was nothing else going on in the world. Well, the, well there wasn't for him. So because, he... as the BBC said, I'm being completely serious here. A BBC news reader was mentioned the cost of living crisis, which had dominated the news before her death, and this was bef- and this was during the period where she was unwell and it looked like she was going to be going soon. Mm. And he actually said the words, the cost of living crisis now seems trivial in comparison. Just, just let that settle in for a moment. Ugh. But Sorry, I... carry on. So Tom Sniggers shows me his phone. There is an article from the BBC that says, scientists say that rituals help with grief. No, really? The scientists were, like, scholars in the study of death studies. Right. But it was just one of those things where he just showed it to me and he was like, did you know this, Vivian? Did you know that rituals help with grief? That's crazy. Never never would have thought (laughs) that. I was like, what? (laughs) It was just that thing of, like, why? Why is this a story? It's like, have you ever sat in on a religion class? (laughs) But But then at the same time, and this is how sad the state of affairs is, Part of me is thinking, oh, at least humanity scholars were consulted on something. Yeah, I know. Even if it was something, I did. I did obvious. scroll through to see who they were quoting, so that way, because I, I was like, if they're quoting like some biologist, I'm going to be pissed. Mm. But it it was somebody who works um, in the sociology department, I think, at Bath. But Bath has a really big death studies department and um, network there. So I was mm. like, okay, it was a name that I recognized in death studies. So I was like, okay, sometimes fair enough. We- <laughs> Sometimes it is quite surprising that some of the things we probably need to be communicating from our discipline may seem really obvious to us. Yeah. So we may be trying these really niche things that the public may find really interesting or that would get a lot of traction. But actually, sometimes we just need to say things that we take for granted. Like rituals help with grief. Yeah, because sometimes I'm, I'm, I wonder if we become an echo chamber. Mm. Well, yeah. So... Which I know you've got plenty of thoughts on anyway. Um, <laughs> but n- not just an echo chamber in terms of our work, but just some of the concepts we deal with. We become so used to some of the concepts that we deal with and some of the frameworks that we use that they seem passe to us. Mm. But they may not be for others. Ain't that just the way? Ain't that just the way? <laughs> Well, I wanted to, before we kind of fully sum up here, I wanted to make a note to our listeners. Um, normally, uh, well, I'll say normally, our last finale episode from last season, we kind of treated like we were running an undergraduate course, which we recognize was probably not the most interesting episode to listen to. So um, I was thinking that maybe this year, instead, what we would do is um, I have gotten a couple of emails from you lovely listeners over the course of the um so, uh, the season, uh, there's been a couple of people on Twitter that have been tweeting us really interesting threads on uh, what they've been thinking about going on. So mm. if uh, I was thinking that maybe I would read out some of these things uh, that are basically you guys interacting with the same topics on the show. Um, and because Alan and I firmly believe that you learn more through dialogue than through lectures, and these are kind of like lectures. So, um, you know, 
if you want to have your thoughts, they don't have to be questions. They can just be your thoughts on some of the subjects that we've been covering. If you have specific questions, then definitely you can send those too. But try to get those in by maybe the end of November because we try to record. The episode will come out in January, but we'll be recording the finale episode sometime in December. So that way Alan and I can take off for the holidays. Mm. So um, you can send that to an email form at uh, religionpopculturepod at gmail.com. And you can also contact us on Twitter at RPC underscore pod. So, um, and, and, you know, if you have any thoughts from last season as well, I don't mind going back a little bit, uh, especially because I think we've talked a lot of the same themes have yes, been on running. And referred to previous episodes. Yeah, so we're, we're happy to kind of jump around and, and kind of see what you guys have to say. So if you have any thoughts on Over the Garden Wall um, and your own views of it, uh, whether it could be your theories on, on what it is, but also the things that you find most fascinating about it, what you find interesting about it. Uh, what's your favorite psychopomp? Uh, <laughs> these kinds of thoughts. I'd, I'd love to hear from you um, and stuff like that. But if people want to talk to you specifically, Alid, where can they go? Uh, they can come find me on Twitter, at Thomas. That's the best place to come and find me. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Viviana Simos on both. And you can check out my blog, IncidentalMythology.com, which will have a video essay on Over the Garden Wall, because I'm obsessed. And I've already nice. done a monster study of the beast. So... <laughs> Because I'm doing it all. Good. Yes, why not? That <laughs> because I do love Over the time. Garden Wall. It's the perfect time of year for it, after all. It is. And I, I highly suggest, if you love it, dear listeners, um, make it part of your seasonal watch list. It's the best way, to me, it was the best way of starting autumn and feeling like, all right, it's cozy season, curled up with a hot chocolate on the couch. and It's too cold. Too cold. <laughs> That's why you curl up on a couch with a blanket and a hot chocolate. It's yes. perfect. But isn't it better in the spring when you just don't need a blanket and you could just sit on the sofa? No. I I don't like sitting on the sofa without a blanket. Oh. It doesn't oh feel as nice. <laughs> the problem with me is if I end up using a blanket, I fall asleep. <laughs> I'm just always falling asleep. <laughs> well, you are approaching your 30s. <laughs> I'm old now. Mm. All right. Well, thank you, Alid, for joining me, and I'm I'm really glad you liked this because it's one of my it's it's one of my favorites. Yeah, I did. It was a Saturday night well spent. Yeah. Um. <coughs> and uh, thank you, lovely <coughs> listeners, for for joining us. And hopefully, you have found your a new love as well. If you are unfamiliar with Over the Garden Wall. Uh. Until next time. Until next time. Bye for now. Bye.